For me, a big breakthrough came when I stopped comparing myself to other people on my team. I could control certain things about myself, which was my attitude and my behaviour and, and the way I looked at training. But ultimately, I just had to get out there and be me. I think that's when I started relaxing and playing my best netball. Sometimes it's not about the destination. Winning championships, winning World Cups is absolutely amazing. But the things that I remember most is the journey. It's the fun things, the experiences, the connections that we had on away trips or change room antics, things like that. I studied and I worked and I did things which has helped me in the next stage of my career outside of sport. And I think sometimes female athletes are actually better when they get spat out the other side because we've had to work so we know what it's like. We've had to juggle multiple things so we just understand that that's just part of life. If I've got a new teammate or a new work colleague or I'm in a new environment, I want to get to know you and what makes you tick. I will ask you a billion questions because I'm curious. I want to know what are some of the things that we really align on and then I'll jump on that because that's what gives me joy having those conversations with you. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Caitlin Bassett is former captain of Australia's national netball team, the Diamonds. Starting in the sport at the age of 11, she dominated the netball scene and is widely regarded as a competitive player, a strong leader, and a great teammate. Caitlin first entered the Diamond squad in 2008 and has an unbelievable 90% accuracy rate when shooting for goal. She scored 2,038 of the attempted 2,268 shots. That's a lot of maths, but that's a high, high accuracy rate. Caitlin is always looking to learn when it comes to leading teams, and in her words, I don't pretend to be perfect, but instead focus on being genuine. And that is what I continually come back to when the pressure is on, being an open and a real leader. She has a communications degree majoring in journalism. I see her on Fox Sports, commentating on multiple shows. She's a passionate spokesperson on topics including leadership and women in sport. And she recently started a role working with a lot of my former colleagues and friends as player development manager at Cricket New South Wales. She has a dog named Chino, and a bunny and a cat. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Wow, thank you for having me. Now, I, I checked your Instagram bio, but I should be calling you Seabass. It's quite funny. I, I've done some speaking the last couple of days and I always think of myself as Seabass because Caitlin, there was three Caitlins in the national team when I was there and so it just got really confusing. So Seabass was what I got named, obviously C for Caitlin and Bass for the first part of my last name, but I only get called Caitlin if I'm in trouble. So yeah, it's oh, a little I'll bit I'll foreign. I'll go with Seabass. <laughs> I, I need to say though, in my vintage, one of the movies we all watched Growing it was up, Dumb and Dumber. Well. It was yes, dumb and dumber. I know, right? Yeah. Kick his ass, Seabass! <laughs> Which is what I always think about. And it's so funny. And people are like, oh, do you like seafood? Do you like fishing? Like, no, I don't even like seafood. So, yeah. So you, you like the movie Dumb and Dumber. I love the movie Dumb and Dumber. Wow, yeah. it's all going to be downhill from here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now, there are so many topics we can talk about. And, I, and I've put some order together today. And the first one, number one, is reaching potential. Number two, I want to talk about training leadership. I know you believe you can train leadership and you are thrown into leadership and you had to learn. I want to really pull on that string. Number three, women in sport and happy IWD. What great timing, Wiz. Yay. International Women's Day. Yeah. Uh, just coincidence, but we're interviewing on National Women's Day. Uh, part four, let's talk about athlete and career transition, uh, both your experience and now what you're doing 
in cricket and other sports. And we'll finish with the performance intelligence baker's dozen. So let's go back in the beginning. Were you a standout talent? Could you see that you were, or could other people see that this young woman, Seabass, is going to play for Australia and captain Australia, which when you look at participation, women's sport, netball, is the number one participation sport by a long, long way. There are millions, and I mean this, millions of young women who play netball and men, because we've got now men. I used to work with the you know New South Wales women's team, the uh, Sydney Swifts, but also the men's netball team many years ago. But to become captain when there's millions of people at grassroots, that's a huge achievement. Take us back where it started. Well, I definitely stood out only for the fact that I was six foot tall at the age of 11. So um, head and shoulders above everyone else in my class. And one of my teachers at school was actually a state league netball coach. I grew up in Western Australia. And so I'd never played netball before. I was into horse riding and maybe played a little bit of t-ball, but my ball sport knowledge was very low. My coordination was absolutely terrible. So I think he saw me, he saw my gangly arms and legs and thought, she's going to make an amazing defender. So he put me down the defense end and um, yeah, I tricked him. I wasn't a great defender at all. (laughs) I probably didn't have that aggression that a a good defender needs, like that really, that want, that need, that desire. I always think of a good defender as like a terrier with a ball. They want to chase it. They want to niggle. And that's definitely not me in my style. I'm very laid back and relaxed, more about having a laugh and having a bit of fun. So so, yeah, yeah I def- until you cross the line. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that. you got a bit of white line fever going on This is on there. true. I am quite competitive in some areas of my life. So, no, I was never um, a standout talent. I guess they saw potential in me because I was so tall and height was a great attribute for netball at the time. I um, mean, it still is. But I was very uncoordinated. Um, my running was non-existent. You'd be embarrassed if you saw me run. And, yeah, physically, I think I it took me a very long time to develop my coordination. You're tall. There's not many people I look up to. <laughs> not many women that tower over me. Are you six three, six four? Six four. I measured myself at work the other day because the girls and I always have arguments about it. So one ninety four and a half centimeters. So yeah, quite tall. Definitely not the tallest these days in netball. We've got players out there on court who are six foot six and taller, and that's really exciting for me to see because back in the day I was the only tall, tall girl. And I struggled because clothes didn't fit me. They didn't make shoes in my size. You know, beautiful ASIC shoes came out and the women's size went up to a 10 and I was a 12. So I used to wear men's shoes. Yeah, the uniforms just weren't designed to fit me. And and I guess a lot of the training that we did was really designed for the shorter, more mobile player. And that definitely was not me. So to go from 11 at six foot to captaining the Diamonds, there's a lot of steps in that way. When you look back, what were a couple of critical moments? And also, can you sort of put a lens on this? Because now you work with a lot of young men and women, and your role with cricket is nurturing a lot of talent. So what were some of those critical steps? And, and then how do you teach other athletes now to look for those signs or to, to really step into those signs? Wow. When I first started playing netball, I never even dreamed of playing netball for Australia, let alone being the captain. And leadership was never in my wheelhouse because I was always the youngest getting put up with the older women to play. I have to admit, I was given many opportunities that I probably wasn't ready for. I got my first professional contract at the age of 16 and all my teammates were, you know, like 
professional women in their mid-20s and things like that. So I was always, I guess, the little fish in a huge pond and I did so much learning off other people. So for me, I guess I was super lucky in the fact that I had some great role models. The women around me really showed me what it was like to be an elite athlete. They showed me how to um, perform under pressure. They showed me how important it was to have life outside of sport as well and to challenge and chase some of my academic career choices. And so I guess I, I was really lucky that I had good role models because I could have seen if I had players who were disinterested in me or frustrated with me and how uncoordinated I was or that I wasn't very fit or fast or strong, it could have definitely gone a different way. And then I guess as I continued playing netball, I just wanted to learn all the time. I was always just really eager to want to be better. Um, I, I guess for me, a big breakthrough came when I stopped comparing myself to other people on my team. So I've been very blessed to play with some absolutely incredible athletes and ones that can do some... Uh, just mind-blowing physical feats and that was never me and so I think if I gave up because I thought I could never be that I would have never have got to where I got to so um, I was pretty lucky in that regard that once I stopped comparing myself to others which is hard to do in sport and in life in general we're always looking at other people on social media we're always you know trying to emulate someone or look up to someone or want to be something that we're not I think as soon as I just accepted I was who I was I couldn't change my body I could control certain things about myself which was my attitude and my behavior and and the way I looked at training but ultimately I just had to get out there and be me I think that's when I started relaxing and playing my best netball that's a huge step to actually stop comparing yourself to others. So we'll, we'll double click on that C in a moment. The, back, the other C I want to come to is curiosity. What did your parents do? <laughs> my dad is an electrician and my mum was a nurse. So, you know, very, I guess, servant-based helping roles. And for me, growing up, they would come down and watch me and my sister play netball and my brother who played for a little bit. And they would always help out. They'd be cooking the barbecue, they'd be doing the timing and the scoring. And they really impressed on me about giving back and being humble. So, you know, after a game, we'd help clean up, we'd help pack down the tents and we'd do all those things. And for me, that was just a normal part of sport is everyone bogged in and everyone helped. And and so as I became more experienced and I, you know, benefited off other people helping me in that way, I immediately wanted to give back because I was lucky to have that experience and people helped me and I wanted to do the same so someone else had that experience too. Mm. But curiosity, once it's in you, you can't get rid of it. We, we had a coffee before we started today and we're talking about a presentation you did yesterday and you're asking me some questions on, on this technique and then you met Wizard and you're asking questions on audio. Were you that annoying kid that like, <laughs> I look at my son. Love him. Love your arch. Why? How come, Dad? And at at his young age, everything is why. I I give him now two questions and then he has to think a little bit. Were you one of those kids asking why, pulling it apart, understanding? No, not at all. I was like that book bookish kid who played the clarinet who was you know hid her head in a book on the weekends or every time we drove in the car so maybe I was asking those questions internally and and searching for the answers myself through research and reading but I think as well curiosity for me is a bit of a deflection because I don't like attention. And I know that sounds really weird. I'm yeah. six foot four, gigantic blonde girl who works in media, who played international netball. Have you read your bio? Yeah, I know, yeah. right. And so I don't really love it, that attention. I don't ever want the focus really to be on me. I'm curious about learning about other people and, and what your experiences are and what your life is because I find that really interesting. So I guess maybe that's where my curiosity comes from. I saw that over coffee today. You kept turning it back to me. I said, no, <laughs> <laughs> CB, 
Bass, come on, this is about you. Not come deliberately. You. I just, uh, yeah, I like learning. I love, I love learning. I know that's the stupidest thing to say, but I find so much joy in learning other people's stories. And that's what I love so much about doing what I'm doing in the media and interviewing other talent is hearing everyone's unique story. I find that fascinating. When you compare yourself to other people, you're always going to run second or you're always going to be disappointed. Is there a pivotal moment where you stopped? Or had you constantly looked at this person, that person, and thought, I'm not good enough, I'm not you know, tall enough, I'm not whatever enough? And then did something happen or did that just slowly evolve and you went, right, I'm me? Yeah, I feel it's a little bit like a song coming out here. <laughs> here I am. <laughs> we could write a Disney show, couldn't yeah, we? Yeah, <laughs> it is a Disney show. But yeah, what, what, what happened? Was it an evolution or was it a, an event? Because that's big. Yeah, it was definitely an evolution. And I think that evolution came from being in high-performance sporting environments where we wanted competition for spots. So it wasn't just, you know, the starting seven girls got out there, they got all the best, you know, treatment and things like that, or you knew that you were, that spot was yours. We really created an environment within the Diamonds that every single training session was an opportunity for you to challenge and to show. And then really, I guess we tried to embrace everyone's differences and the fact that having different dynamics in a team was a really good thing. So I first used to really struggle with that competition. I used to look at the other shooter whose name was Caitlin as well, which was really confusing and go, well, why is she playing over me? What is she doing that I need to do better? And I would really, I guess, get caught up in in competing in a one-on-one sense. And as soon as I started to realise that we had different strengths and the reason why we worked on court at different times was for completely different things, I almost felt a bit more free and I felt like I could connect with her so much better. Yes, we were competing with each other and I would not have been the netballer without her continually pushing me and me continually pushing her. But also that competition, I couldn't just go out there and and, and try and outmuscle her because she was super strong and that was her strength. I had to have some other point of difference. So I think for me, once I started realizing that, that I was, you know, it wasn't just about being that starting shooter and, and, and having to be better at every single skill than every other shooter in the team, that it was actually about leaning on what my strengths were. And, and that's when I started, I guess, leaning on connection. So it wasn't as much as what I was doing in the circle, but how I connected with the goal attack and we attack out in front of me and really bringing that team vibe into it. I felt so much more relaxed and I felt like I could be a lot more free on court. Did you work that out yourself? Did you have a coach? Was there a, a sports psychologist or was there a team involved? Because that, that's advanced constructs to work that out. So when I often work with an athlete, Seabass, I just got to call you Seabass now. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> I will ask, you know, what sort of work are you doing? That's evolved to actually get to that learning, knowing where you are, even knowing whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, which we'll talk about specific to leadership. Did you have coaching on that? I did. I was really lucky that I had an amazing a coach from a young national level, Lisa Alexander, who ended up becoming the national coach with me. So we had a really good connection and we used to have really open and honest conversations about a selection that was part of my role when I was captain. And so I was highly aware of, you know, different strengths of different players and my own strengths, which was fantastic. But then I also did a lot of work with the psych in Perth as well. And she absolutely changed my thinking about everything. I was very um, negative. I had a lot of irrational beliefs that I kept telling myself. I had a lot of negative self-talk that was really holding me back. And it got to the stage, I just felt like I was coming back to square one. Every pre-season, I would be beating myself up because I knew that it was going to be hard. I knew that it was going to be frustrating because I wouldn't be able to bench press as much as the other girls. I'd always be at the end of the running drills and the pack. I'd always be struggling when we did fitness. And I was like, I, I can't keep 
keep doing this. Like if I want to make netball my career, I can't keep beating myself up like this. So luckily through my play development manager, Angie Bain, she put me onto this amazing sports psych in Perth. And that just kind of started that, you know, cognitive awakening for me. And having that, is it's a gift at a young age as well because I always say there are three parts you can train as an athlete or any high performer you can train your craft and that's the tactical and it's it's just the craft what you do netball the second is the body and yeah strength and conditioning coaches have been big in sport for 15 or 20 years the third is the brain and what what used to be when I was an athlete long time before you but if you were stressed anxious depressed if you weren't performing at your peak i'll go see the psychologist and sort your shit out it was Mm. more problem or deficit focused it's now moved to skills based the work i do with rugby league players boxers and a whole bunch of athletes is we front load the cognitive skills in a non-pressurized environment so then when the heat is on you draw on them automatically so you had that without even realizing it yeah and i was really lucky and and to be honest i totally get that because as athletes we don't get to control many things in our life. We get told what to eat, what to wear, where to be, you know, what plays to run. Everything is micromanaged for us. So, you know, when you have emotions or um, feelings that you don't know how to deal with, to have tools to be able to help control them and take back that power is so good because you don't get a lot of control in your life. So having those little things that you can control, you kind of cling to. And yeah, for me, it was finally not just being led by my emotions all the time, actually feeling like I can control them. That gave me a lot of confidence, especially before a big game. I was always worried, you know, I'd have a tough day or, uh, you know, mentally something would happen to me in the warm up and then I'd crumble for the game. But once I learned some of those skills and started to kind of unpack why I was thinking this way, it gave me a lot more confidence that, you know, if something did go wrong, that was okay. I, I could help fix it or I could help move past it to still perform well. We all have emotions. Sometimes you get had by your emotions. And when you stop the fishtail and you realize, hey, this is normal, what were some of the strategies? If you're comfortable talking about one or two of the tactics, tactics that you put into your skill set on that that psychological skill set. Yeah, so funnily enough, when I was growing up, no surprise, I was always really ashamed of my body because it was so different from everyone else's. And I would get on the train to go to school every morning and I would constantly pe- hear people whispering about how I looked or how tall I was or, you know, strangers would come up to me all the time and, and make a comment or ask how tall I was, which for them, I, I guess they were being curious like I like to be. But for me, I found that as a, a bit of a personal attack, especially as something I was so self-conscious about. So for me in the netball space, uh, like a lot of the time I used to almost kind of shrink or be invisible out there in court because I, I didn't want, I didn't like my body and I didn't like how it looked or what it did at times. And so, you know, we kind of unpacked one of the, the tools that really helped for me was, well, to be a great shooter or to be a really great netball player out on court for my position, it was about presence. It was about being strong and confident. So mm. really simple things like power stances. And I don't know if you've ever done them before, but, you know, I, I making know yourself well. feel as big as possible. I'd always try to shrink myself down. And, you know, if I was uncomfortable, I'd try and hide. But for me, it was doing the opposite. It was putting my chest out. It was standing with my hands on my hips before the first ball came down. It was showing my opposition like, I'm big, I'm huge, and I'm here to dominate you. And that kind of helped me, you know, when I was feeling a little bit intimidated or perhaps was nervous before a game. So it was acknowledging it's a gift rather than trying to blend in and, and hide. What, what do you see now? And, and I'll give you some time to, to think. So what I see, knowing you, I see a tall, confident, athletic woman and you're very attractive, 
but attractive personality. Like the you you, you light up a room. That's what I see. Um, <laughs> what what do you see? Um, it's funny because so I this was not in the no. Notes, this, right? is so this is fine. I'm about. always happy to go off and attend. But, but this is what's great about a conversation because yeah. you just said something that's thrown me a little bit that you weren't comfortable, and I can't help but think accepting you who you were not worrying about others has been a huge foundation for your success yeah I think for me the acceptance that I can't change about what people are going to say to me I can only can really once again comes back to the control I can't control what you're going to say to me or Australians going to say to me but I can control how I was going to react and so a lot of the time my reaction was embarrassment shame I'd want to go home and just jump into bed and you know not stand next to other people because I felt like I was towering over them or they would make a comment about how huge my hands or feet were but actually going, do you know what? I'm going to flip that. And yes, I am tall and I can't change that, but I'm actually not going to let that ruin my day. Otherwise, I'm not going to have any form of life, am I? Being tall is actually what got my foot in the door with netball to start off with. And to be honest, standing out now in this everyday life, people dye their hair crazy. They get piercings, they get tattoos in order to stand out. And I just naturally do that just by being me. So I try to kind of embrace it these days. I guess the personality part, oh, growing up, I was very much the ugly duckling. And so I felt like I had to wow people with my personality. My dad has a very sick sense of humor. So I grew up with a lot of jokes and laughing and fun. And so I guess it was kind of always about maybe not looking at me as a person. I wanted to distract you from the physical, but make you feel comfortable and at ease with me by personality and, and making, yeah, I guess helping you see more to me than just what the outside entails. Change the narrative. It's not the ugly duckling. You're, just <laughs> the, you're the outlier duckling and the outliers do amazing things, right? It's, it's the ducklings that swim with everyone else that just blend in. So what do you see now? Like when you look in the mirror, as a, a woman in her 30s, you know, I just ticked over a big milestone. So you're a baby. <laughs> what do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you see? What do you think? Um, wow. I see someone who is aging very quickly because while you're playing sport, it's like you're almost freeze framed in that moment of your life. You're always, uh, for me, I started out being the youngest, so I always emulated the older girls. So I pretended to be older. And then when I was one of the older girls, I was surrounded by the younger girls. So I always acted like I was younger at times. Like one of my teammates turned to me on the plane once and said, hey, Seabass, I just realized you're 12 years older than me. And I went, huh. She goes, you don't act it. And I was like, yeah, no, like I kind of I've always I'm really good at blending into whatever age gap. If I need to act more mature, awesome. If I need to kind of be a little bit more immature to fit in, I'm, I'm quite a chameleon in that regard. But I guess as I look at myself in the mirror now, I see a bit of a blank canvas. For the first time, I can take control about who I want to be, what I want to look like. I no longer have to be told, you know, you've got to look a certain way or dress a certain way to fit in with the team. So yeah, it's, it's kind of exciting. And I'm just trying to embrace who I am and I guess what the past has given me now and, and move forward with that. Blank canvas is such a good answer. <laughs> I, I see a blank canvas. Mm. I see an amazing amount of experience. I see depth. I see you. It, it's like you, I look at uh, my Two young daughters, especially Sophia. I had to pause and think which one came. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, my kids' names? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Sophia will wear my shoes and go, "Oh, my, my shoes! These are my shoes. They fit." And I go, "No, you, you know, if you're being rational, go, Sophia, you're being crazy. They mm. don't fit." But she's role playing, and she's got a big pair of shoes she wants to grow into. I see the blank canvas is there for you to grow into with what you're doing with athlete development, with what you're doing in the speaking, with your podcast, with your commentating. It's really exciting. It is exciting. And just pause. We're going to go down that, that rabbit hole in a moment. 
I want to give you a quote from Kim Green when you joined the Giants. Kim said, I honestly believe Caitlin is one of the most valuable players in the world. She wins games. She's a big game player, so we're very fortunate to have her in our team, and I'm excited to work with her. That's a pretty good rap from a new teammate. Yeah, well, she wasn't a new teammate at the time. We'd played together at the Australian Diamonds for a very long time. And when I first, probably my very first tour, she was my roommate, actually. I'll never forgive her. You get presented with your your playing dress before your very first game. And the night before the game, I didn't realise this. And I was going through my wardrobe, my luggage, and I couldn't find my playing dress. I was getting so stressed out. She'd actually stolen it to give to the coach so she could present it to me the next day. So a little bit of beef on her for that stressful moment. But... I guess it is It is great rap. You want to be that person that someone wants to have on your team and being the tall girl who hated herself and her body growing up to all of a sudden have an attribute that everyone wanted to have on your, their team was an amazing feeling. And so that's why netball, I guess for me, was a bit of a saviour. It made me feel like I was useful and that being different was a really cool thing because it was and people wanted me on their team just because I was different. So that was great and that's what helped me a lot with my body confidence. But I guess in precious situations... I learned over the years that I wanted to have the ball in my hands. That was the reason why I trained. That was the reason why I sacrificed so much. I, I spent extra time putting up shots. I spent extra time in the gym trying to get stronger was because at a critical moment in the game, I wanted the ball in my hand because I'd worked so hard for that moment. 90% accuracy at, at international level in any sport is ridiculous. How much of that was natural? How much was that did you really work? Um... Well, let's be honest, my shots were taken mainly from underneath the post. I'm a short range goal shooter. I can shoot long, but I mainly post up my position or how I would work with my goal attack, who was mainly Nat Medhurst at the time, was she would do the running out the front. I would mainly have two players back marking me because the high ball coming into me was a threat. And then as we as the ball came down the court, it would be a bit of a cat and mouse. Nat would get the ball. The defender would have to decide whether they were going to peel off me, which then opened me, or whether they were going to let her run wild. And so I really enjoyed that kind of mind game about, oh, when's the right time? When am I going to move? How do I take these players away? How do I open her up? I knew I always had to watch the ball because it was always going to come to me at at one stage. And so, yeah, I guess for me, I don't know. Do you notice what you did there? What? It's Nat. It's the team. It is. It is. Oh, and do you know how I know this? Because I went back and played some mixed netball recently and I was terrible. And do you know why I was terrible? <laughs> because my teammates didn't pass the ball in the right spot for me. They didn't do the work outside the circle to draw the player off me in a one-on-one situation. I really struggle. I need the team around me to do the things to open me up. So, yeah, I was really lucky that I got to play with players that made me look good. That's an interesting post-game analysis. Yeah. Are you sure this is Caitlin Bass's seat? What what was the debrief like in that mixed netball? It was like, uh, why did we lose by 10 goals? We've got this giant girl who used to play captain for Australia on our team. And I was like, yeah. Fire up, Seabass. I was like, "Um, yeah, I can't actually run outside the circle when these things happen. I need you to get the ball here and look in here and you need to put it in this exact spot. And so, yeah, like we had really tight structures when I was playing with the Diamonds and, you know, at my my club level team that I knew exactly. It was like chess game. If she was going to move there, I would move here. If she went here, I would be in this position. If she had this look on her face, I knew I had to be ready because the ball was coming in. Things like that. Um, I really enjoyed about netball. It was more than just a one-on-one. Oh, she's stronger than you, so she's going to outjump you. Or she can shoot 50 goals in a game, so their team's going to win. I was like, well, no, that's not the case. How can we kind of flip the narrative? 
perfect segue into leadership. You're just natural at bringing other people into the conversation. And I know from when you were captain, that is what a lot of your teammates, what the media said, that you were very focused on empowering others. Uh, 11-year-old, you're six foot, you've gone through, you've made 16-year-old, you made the, the, the state team or the train-on team, then you become in the Australian team in your early 20s, then you become captain. How did you then transition from playing? Because I'm working with a few players at the moment in a few different sports who've been made captain at a young age and they're shitting themselves because they're going, well, I've got my game. So let's use rugby league as one player's example and I know what to do. Now I'm looking after 16 other men on a weekend. How do I do that? So what did you do to learn about leadership? What did you do to become a, a great leader? So for me, I didn't actually get a leadership position until I was, I think, 27 or maybe even 30. I was a little bit older. So I'd done a lot of those things before. And I think a lot of the anxiety in leadership from young players is that they're still trying to work out their own game and they're still trying to work out their own performance. And when you're a little bit older, you've kind of, you know, I'd done two World Cups. I'd done a couple of Com games before I'd then become captain. So I kind of was like, I dealt with those nerves. I'd done it before. When we went on tour, I'd done that before. I was a little bit more relaxed and I felt like I'd looked after my own stuff. I knew my own routine down pat. I knew what I needed to do to perform. So I could kind of take my eye off that and help focus on other people and help them do those things. Because, you know, when I was young, that's what the captain did for me. They they helped me prepare and, and um, you know, we experimented with different routines before a game. And I think for me, the biggest thing is just confidence. You've got to give your teammates confidence and it's never a threat to help someone or give someone else the opportunity to lead. I can only see goodness in it because we all learn in different ways and we all respond to different things. And the way the Diamonds do their leadership selection or did back in the day was we used to have an open conversation. You know, this is what we see as important values for our team. And then we used to say, well, who actually lives these values? And so if your teammates were talking and saying, oh, you know, we want someone who does all the 1% and does this, and then they don't mention your name, that's a great conversation opener for you to go and sit down over a coffee with them and be like, hey, what do I need to do to show you that I do these one percenters? Or what do you need to see more from me? Or you didn't mention me when you talked about inspiration. What like, what does inspiration look to you? And so I feel like a lot of that as a young player, it is stressful because you're still working out, you know, your own journey in your own way. And once you become a little bit more settled and established, you can you can go out there and, and help others. But I felt a lot of pressure when I was first captain that I had to be the match winning player, that I had to be the MVP for every single game and that the captain was always this inspirational figure. But you don't have to. We're breaking the mould these days with leaders. Leaders look like something completely different than it was back in the day, which was maybe the best player who maybe had some poor behaviours and didn't do the right thing, oh, but they could win the game for you. So that was great leadership. an example in sport. Exactly. And I, I won't break any confidence codes in, in teams <laughs> I've worked with. But there's some leaders I look back on and go, yes, he, mainly he, when you're talking about leadership and poor behaviours, is an amazing player that he does not have a mental awareness about other people and leads on the field by example, but off the field has no idea. Though a young athlete, a male or a female cricketer comes to you or a male or female who's just been promoted to be leader in basketball or another team sport, and they're saying to you, I've got no idea. And, and let's jump out because a lot of people who listen to this aren't in sport, they're in the corporate world. And what often happens is the best salesperson is then made the leader or someone is standing there, the Stephen Bradbury, and they're told, hey, you're an amazing, insert whatever you do, now you're going to lead the team. And he or she just goes, ah, what do you say to that person? How do they step into that? What skills do they need? How do they not freak out? 
And how do they keep doing what they're good at, mm. which put them in that spot? And that's enough questions. Mm. I definitely think it is that. It's focusing on, well, what did I do to get here in the first place? And when I was named captain, I had a freak out and yeah, thought that I had to be this all of a sudden perfect being of a leader. But it was actually the things I'd been doing all along that had got me the votes to get into that position in the first place. So I think going back to, well, like, what are my strengths and what do I, what have I done to get me in this position? Um, what have I been doing to be the best salesman and keep doing that? But then challenging yourself and opening your view a little bit more. Well, how can I help some other people get to that stage as well? Because I think the sometimes it's not about the destination. Winning championships, winning World Cups is absolutely amazing. But the things that I remember most about my netball career is the journey. It's the fun things, the experiences, the connections that we had on away trips or, you know, during different, you know, change room antics, things like that. It was not necessarily a performance thing. So I think sometimes it's about connecting with others and how can you connect. And we all don't have to be the same to connect. Like you and I don't have to have exactly the same background or beliefs in order to get along and to perform well and to play well together. But we just have to have that mutual respect and understanding. And that comes through time. It's not just going to happen straight away. So just to be patient, do what you've been doing really well, but then try and open your eyes and challenge yourself a little bit more to, well, what can I do to help? or encourage someone else. You went to some other sports. You looked at other teams, other individuals. One example that really resonates with you, is there a sport you looked at, a person you spoke to and you went, huh, I can see what they've done. I can learn from that person. I can learn from that team. So growing up in WA, AFL was my game. Um, I was a passionate West Coast Eagles supporter for a long time. And um, it wasn't until I moved over here that I discovered other sports like NRL and you know rugby and cricket and all these other things. So definitely opened my eyes up. But um, I guess coming from an AFL um, you know, background as a kid, I I was really lucky to connect with a few AFL captains at the time. And one of the ones that really stood out to me and who I had great conversation with was Joel Selwood. And it doesn't surprise me that he's gone on and, you know, not only won a premiership with the um, Cats, but now is working with the Storm in their leadership. He and is an impressive person. Isn't he just? And do you know what struck me? He was only a year older than me. We sat down. He It was in Perth, the um, international football, the Gaelic football was happening and he was playing as part of that. And I didn't know him from a bar of soap. I just got connected to him through different people. And he made the time to sit down and have an honest conversation with me. And I, I literally asked him questions. What's it like as a leader? How do you go leading players that are older than you? Because that's sometimes the challenge of a young leader is that you've got players who are probably more experienced than you. And they're looking down at you going, well, why would I listen to you? You don't know anything. Players like on the bus <laughs> who can be 12 years different. So exactly. you could be there and there's some of the older players and then you've grown up watching them or you may have had posters on the wall. I've seen this a lot. And then mm. suddenly you're leading those people. Mm. That's a freak out. It is a freak out. And so, yeah, I think I was really lucky that um, listening to him and talking to him and his vulnerability and being honest that he wasn't the be all and end all, he wasn't perfect and that there were always going to be challenges and things actually relaxed me. I think for some reason we think that life is going to be perfect. And then when something goes wrong, we're like, I'm going to give up. This is horrible. Why did I do this? Whereas I think when I prepared myself that things probably were going to go wrong, when they did come up, I was like, oh yeah, like that's that's fine. I'm prepared for this and we're just going to deal with and this is part of everyday life instead of, oh, well, this means I'm a bad leader or I have to deal with this. Or if I didn't deal with something perfectly or, or I didn't review it afterwards and go, how could I have done that better? I feel like it was going to pop up continually again and again in the future and keep biting me. So I just tried to, like after major competitions, myself and the vice captain would sit down and say, okay, well, what did we do well? And what could we have done better? And we asked for honest feedback from the group because, I mean, you're not going to know unless people tell you. We're not mind readers. And so, you know, in order to get better, I think that feedback is really important. 
the trust you had in the team to first of all talk about what are the values, this is in the diamonds, then to do a debrief. It's very military-like, and, and I've learned that from the military, and we do that in our business. Every time we do one of our online webinars, we sit down and at the end we go, what worked, what didn't, what can we do better next time? Now, to do that requires open, honest conversation because you're not just pissing in each other's pocket and going, oh, that was awesome, and then you walk away and go, ah, Caitlin, ah, knives are out. Was, did you learn that from Joel or did you learn that from Lisa or did you learn that from other coaches? Because that, that again, is a really open, transparent, difficult at times with the conversations form of leadership. Mm, no, it was definitely something we did um, working with leading teams through the Diamonds and, yeah, Ray McLean. Ray McLean. Yeah, yeah, I love him to bits. Um, you know, so when I, I uh, was – Fortunate to work with Dave Misson at the Sydney Swans, just doing a. So I was a rabbit running in the off season, but I've done a lot of work with Misso in different teams. He's now general manager of football at St Kilda, and yeah, the influence he had on the Swans back then and other sports is massive. So that's interesting to hear that it was Ray. Yeah, it was Ray, and he was incredible. And I think. He was unsure coming into a female sporting environment how it would work and, and sometimes when you get lots of females together, I know this is really stereotypical and horrible, but um, we can be quite emotional at times and we have a lot of perfectionistic ideals and things like that and I think for him coming in, it was a real experiment and it just worked perfectly. Like When we started connecting with one another, when we started understanding how powerful it was to have an open and honest conversation, that feedback was feedback. It wasn't positive, it wasn't negative. It was just putting it out there on the table and started doing proper reviews all the time and not just saying, oh, that was perfect and everything was perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you said, pissing in each other's pockets. That's not going to make us better. At times we had to pull back because we can be very critical of ourselves and especially in an elite environment, you can get super nitty gritty on some really tiny details, which aren't helpful. But I think having the general overview of every single training session, we said, stop, up, keep. What do we stop doing? What was didn't work for us in that session. What do we start doing? What needs to be more? And what and what do we keep doing? What's working really well for us? And we kept coming back to those keeps and trying to grow those keeps as big as we could. You have a junior young punk who's just come in. You're captain. You're the big dog. You're the sea bass. And they say, sea bass, you need to stop doing this. How does that go down? That's fine. I'm like, wow, good on you. You've had the balls to, to have that chat to the captain. I think one of the things that Ray imparted on us was that it didn't matter if you were the most capped player in the team or if you were the rookie coming in, everyone was equal and everyone needs to be treated the same. And I found that really refreshing. And, and part of the way that we helped grow that was we gave everyone a role in the team. It wasn't just the captain that had to go and do stuff or the vice captain. Everyone in the team had a different role that they could you know, take on board as their own and make it their own. And so we had some girls who took charge of the warm-up. We had girls who took charge of social activities. We had girls that took charge of uniform, which was the most boring thing, and I had to do that as well. But we really empowered players to kind of take it and run with it and make the team what they wanted to make it. Um, they weren't, you know, just passengers and being told what to do all the time, that we wanted you to be free to be who you were because that helped our team massively. And we wanted to hear your voice because that also helped our team massively and different people see things in different ways. So, yeah, if a young player said to me, I hate when you do that, I'd be like, wow, that, okay, cool. Let's sit down and have a chat about this. Like, this is maybe why I do this. Why do you not like this? What are your experiences in this situation and kind of unpack that and understand? Because I think sometimes until you have a conversation with someone, you might not know that it's really triggering for them if you yell at them or you might not, they might not, they might want really concise feedback. So when you kind of sugarcoat or give it to them a bit fluffy, they don't like it. So I think having that conversation is really good for communication purposes. You know, there are some people listening to this who work in a bank or a consulting firm or in a government agency and they're a leader by title. Mm. They're 
freaking out now. How, how dare someone at a lower level talk to them? If you haven't been used to that process, it is confronting. But when you have been involved in that and when you see that process, it, it just gets you elevated to a whole different level. Whiz, we need to get Ray McLean in because the influence he's had on Australian sport and young men and women who've gone on to you know, work in this space is phenomenal. So we've got to get Ray in and pull on that thread. Do you speak German? Ich will nicht. No, I don't. Oh, just a bit of music German, but that's all. Good start. Den wunderschönen Monat mehr. It's going well. <laughs> I think she spoke about my hair is looking really lengthy and I need to straighten it. <laughs> uh, mit Freud and Schadenfreude. Are yes. you familiar with those two Okay, words? yes, because I've just listened to Brene's brand Atlas of the Heart and they were two concepts she talked about and I wanted to do a little bit more research. So please um, tell me some more. I read about this in Matchfit. Schadenfreude is what we know because Schadenfreude is often in journalism, one of your hats, and it's pleasure in other people's misery. Australian captain fails in this innings or you know, – banking executive on his backside, on her backside, blah, blah. And people go, ooh. And, and the psychology behind that is when you're living a life not on purpose, you don't feel like you're connected, there is pleasure in other people's misery. There's a whole psychology around that. The opposite, and not a lot of people know, but Mitfreud is pleasure in other people's success. When I see you talk and your eyes light up when you're talking about young women, young men you work with in different sports, you are so on Mitfreud. So you have helped other people grow. It's why your teammates say nice things about you. Where does that come from? Because I, I see a lot of competitive athletes mm. are like, screw you, screw the world. I'm here mm. and I'll climb over, I'll claw, I'll punch, gouge anyone to get to the top. You're different on that. I think it definitely came from that's what I experienced when I was young. So I, I tell a story. It's very embarrassing. When I first started playing at 16, I got put in the gym for the first time. They're like, sweet, Sebastian, you're going to go do bench press. I went to push the bar just as a warm up, 20 kilos. Ugh, I couldn't even lift the bar off. So we went, okay, so the trainer put the 15 kilo bar on. Ugh, I couldn't even push the 15 kilo bar. So the trainer goes to the cupboard and gets the broomstick out. So I did my first year pushing the broomstick. Do you know what? When I got to do the actual 15 kilo bar and then the 20 kilo bar, the people that were most happiest for me, I was still deeply embarrassed, were my teammates because they saw improvement. They saw how hard I was willing to work. I wasn't pushing a 60 kilo PB competing with them, but I was still doing what I needed to do to be a better netballer and that's what they saw value in and so I think it kind of that really rubbed off on me like I was never the fittest the fastest or the strongest but whenever I made my own personal gains or when they saw me doing driving out the side of the circle catching a ball passing it and running back in something that I never did they would cheer loudly because it was it was encouraging me to continue growing so I then when I started playing and and Probably my happiest time as captain was when I got to um, debut with a player. So when they got to be on debut and Gretel Buedo is one of my favourite debuts. Look at you light up. Like I know. I just can't help it. I get goosebumps thinking about it. But she's just the most incredible player and to be able to have the pleasure and honour to stand out there when she played her very first game and to share in some of the joy that she felt, I think for me is the reason why I played sport and the reason why I still want to continue being involved in sport. While I no longer play, I can still be involved in someone's journey and making it a really positive experience for them. Mm. What do you bench now? <laughs> Some kid asked me that yesterday as well. I reckon about 40. I'd be pushing 40 with a struggle. But do you know what I've realised? I don't need to bench press a lot to be a good play development manager. <laughs> yeah. 
40 is a big improvement, though. From, it's not bad, uh, is it? When you're telling me that story, I couldn't help but think of Montgomery Burns. But yes. you look nothing like Montgomery Burns. And you know what? I thought I'll never be a good netballer because I can't bench press 60 kilos. And it did take a lot of time. And, and I think SNC coaches looked at me and thought I wasn't trying. You know, coaches on court when I was struggling with fitness thought I was being lazy. But it was purely because my body didn't work like other players' bodies. And as soon as I started getting treated as an individual and accepted for who I was and the fact that although I wasn't doing what everyone else could do, I was still working my butt off to try and be the best version of Caitlin as possible. I think people started then to be like, okay, like, yeah, this chick's okay. She'll be cool. Like, she deserves to be part of our team. Mm. You have written around five leadership lessons, your top five leadership lessons. I'll go through the five and then do you want to pick one? We can go in, in a little bit more detail. Number one is to be myself. Number two, empower others. Number three, losing sucks even more when you're the captain. Four, you can't do everything. And five, there is always more to learn. I think for me, you can't do everything. And that's definitely um, front of mind for me at the moment. It's a lesson that keeps continually coming to nip me on the backside. I think when you're the leader of the team, you want to prove that you're fantastic at everything and you're perfect speaking in the media and that you're going to shoot 100% at training and then you're going to have a game of your life and then you're going to be there for all your teammates and be super supportive. But at the end of the day, you, can, you can't spread yourself that thin. There's, it's going to crack somewhere. And so that's, I guess, leading into some of the other ones. That's why I like to empower other girls to help out because – I knew I could only split myself so far and still be a valuable, effective leader. I was no use to anyone if I was struggling off four hours sleep, hadn't eaten lunch because I'd been running around like crazy or was mentally and physically fatigued. So the the probably one of the best things for me was, um, yeah, picking and choosing and prioritising things and um, learning to say no to people, which is a very hard thing, and saying no and not having to give an excuse. And then not punching myself for not doing a billion things or comparing myself to someone else who was doing a billion things. International Women's Day. Natural to talk about women in sport. A quote from The Guardian in 2022 says, in years gone by, women worked full-time jobs around their sporting careers and retirement from sports simply meant they finally had a chance to get a full night's sleep on a regular basis and an ability to use their annual leave for leisure. For professional male athletes, particularly those with as many accolades as Bassett, retirement is often bolstered by a large investment portfolio, a fully paid off property and a plethora of connections in the business and media world to forge a new career. Mm, yes. So when I first started playing netball, my very first netball contract was $50 and I was confused whether I had to pay that money or they were going to pay me. I was, I was pleasantly surprised that they gave me that money. It was fantastic. Things have changed a lot in professional female sport and I get really excited when I see you know new CBAs coming out and players talking about rev shares and, and really jumping on board and finally getting paid some decent money. But for me, when I first started playing, that was reality. I couldn't change it. I unfortunately knew lots of athletes who you know, probably retired early because because they wanted to have a family and to be able to support that family meant they had to get a full-time job. So, and That must have been hard because netball, number one female participation sport in Australia, and then you compare that to the other big sports and participation, cricket and AFL. And then you're going, I got $50. <laughs> this is bullshit. My, my son said to me a couple of years ago, he said, Dad, and, and this is what I love about education now with young kids, as far as diversity and inclusion, they're questioning, like, why did this happen? So Archie said to me, Dad, do you realise when Nans, my mother, was a young girl that she could probably only do nursing or work as a, a receptionist? He said, isn't that unfair? And he said, do you know that a lot of women now, they still get paid less than men? Why does that 
that happen. Isn't that it's like at that stage you was nine or ten, and and I think there is hope because you got young boys and girls who are growing up much more equality, much more inclusion to the point they don't even talk about. Oh, that's my friend. Mm. He's from China. Or that's my friend. You know, she's from Singapore. That's my friend Raj. That's my friend Caitlin. And they just get on with it. So there is hope that the younger generation is totally thinking differently around this. That must have been tough for you, though, forging that, the work you've done, and then you see see Joel and see the career and the money he's made. You've worked as hard, if not harder. Yeah, I think it, it's a blessing and a curse. Like, for me, it, it was all I knew. I had to work to, to play netball. And I think that's what weeded out the people who weren't really genuine and passionate in netball is that to be there, you had to really want to be there. It's not like you were getting paid heaps of money. And sometimes I look at, say, like state of origin and the amount that players get paid and think, I wonder if they said, you're not going to get paid at all to play. This is just for the pride. And this is for just being a part of this amazing, you know, three game series that means so much to so many people. I wonder, no one would say no, do you reckon? Do you reckon any player would be like, I'm not getting paid, so I'm not going to do it? I reckon the players that are really into it, yeah. they would just play. Exactly. But but I pause. I think it's so grey now in sport that it's just become, hey, I'm playing at the top level in a lot of male sports mm-hmm. and I deserve. I, I think when it becomes an expectation, yes. Yes. that's where you have some challenges. And you know, women's cricket, you're seeing this now, a lot more money in the game. How good is it now with the IPL, seeing our young Aussie female cricketers on multi, like you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars contracts, but there's still a gap between everyone else. It's moving forward. But in women's cricket especially, it, it's where men's cricket was 15, 20 years ago. It's semi-professional for a lot of women. You know, they are getting paid, but it's not going to set them up to buy a house and, and to do what they want down the track. So there is still a gap and there's a catching up. Back to your question, it's really hard. I think in men's sport now that it has had that level of money, there's just an expectation now that we deserve to get it. I do believe, though, what makes a difference between the great and the good, it, it's intrinsic. It's on purpose. I would do this even if I didn't get paid. Oh, it's a bonus that I get seven figures. Yeah, yeah. I think for me the importance is that it's continually moving forward. The ones that played before me got no money whatsoever. So the fact that I got paid a little bit of money and then we really fought hard during um, you know, my career to, to get more media rights, to get more money. So the girls now have something that they can build upon for the next generation. And it's really easy, I guess, to sit back and go, oh man, like they get paid so much more money than I ever got paid and they're making more money in a year than I made in 10 years. But also what they're creating now is opportunities for me to work in the media and for me to get paid to commentate or for me to get paid to do podcasts and journals and things like that. So there are other opportunities that come to you from the work that you do earlier on. And I think that's really valuable. But I guess I, I just want to continually seeing it move forward and, and conversations that happen on International Women's Day to make people aware that there are still gender gaps and there are still gaps and that, you know, we can't compare male and female athletes. You can't say, oh, women AFL players deserve to get exactly what men AFL players to get. Well, they probably don't at this stage because it's very different. Their games are very different. They play a different amount of everything. It's just so different. Also the commercial lens. Yes. It's all about how many people watch the games exactly. in the grounds and on TV. And and I am an absolute advocate. In fact, I, I sometimes think like we shouldn't even be having the conversation. It just should be a lot more balanced. You know, I've got three daughters, so I'm out there. Just yes. It's part of my life. But there is a reality that is sometimes missed in the conversation. The women's tennis, absolutely. You know, it's at the level. It's got the rights. Um, so it's got the the 
uh, coverage and the TV, they're getting paid the money they deserve to pay. And AFL will come up, but that's, I think, an argument sometimes where people say it should be parody. You've got to look at commercial reality on this as well. You do. And you have to look at them standing alone and being able to stand on their two feet. And I don't know if throwing $100,000 at a brand new player who's played for two seasons is the best thing. Is that going to help her in her life outside of sport? Because through what I went through, I, I studied and I worked and I did things which has helped me in the next stage of my career outside of sport. And I think sometimes female athletes are actually better when they get spat out the other side because um, we've had to work. So we know what it's like. We've had to juggle multiple things. So we just understand that that's just part of life. Whereas you see some male athletes who have been on extremely high wages crash and burn because all of a sudden they're just out in a sea where they have no idea what to do. And, and yes, they have money or you know housing portfolios and things like that, but actually what their purpose is, is really struggle to find. What I am most proud of of my two years at Parramatta is not that we got through to the grand final. Would have been nice if we won. That's a better story, <laughs> isn't it? But I've got five players who are still in the starting 17. Uh, Reed Marty's moved, so four in the starting 17, who are doing degrees. And, and I know when they finish, they will step into the next chapter and they're qualified and they won't have that massive dip that a lot of male athletes do. And you're right. When you are in an environment where you paid a fortune, you're in your 20s, everyone treats you differently. Down the track, that stops. And if you haven't got other skills outside, if you don't know how to transition, the fall can be massive. Mm, yeah, exactly. And I think um, we do really well preparing girls and female athletes for it. But yeah, we're definitely seeing value in the male side of things. And you know, why would a male athlete who's earning half a million dollars a year want to study or do things outside of sport that potentially is going to drag his attention away from sport well we can Ooh, actually see we it can helps. actually see exactly it helps him perform makes you better athlete exactly and so for me it's a no-brainer I think developing that self-awareness that self-concept and understanding who you are as a human is only going to help you when you get challenged in the sporting environment so you're getting me excited you're going deep into mental <laughs> skills and you're talking about role identity the male or female who only sees them as the athlete mm. when they're not an athlete they crash mm. but when you see yourself as this person with flaws and strengths, you can then adapt that to multiple areas. You say, quote, netballers are known as great multitaskers. And you know why? Because we have to be. Every one of my teammates has to juggle, study, or a part-time job, or both, along with their netball career. Because the reality is, it is what you have to do to survive, even if you're playing at the elite level. It's so true. And that's why I guess I, I love my role at the moment with Cricket New South Wales, is that a player turns around to me and says, I don't have time to study CVAS. I say, bullshit because you can always find time and you can always find value in it and the importance in it and I get it you're tired and that you want to have a rest and it's you know you're one day off a week and you probably just want to go and play golf which is what lots of the cricketers love to do but I think you know challenging them to to do something and push themselves a little bit harder because when you stop playing elite sport ain't no one going to be pushing you there's no one going to be telling you reply to your emails there's no one going to be telling you or holding your hand to do stuff you literally have to go out there and do it for yourself so while I might be mean to them at times and push them to do things it actually, for me, probably some of the, the most exciting parts of my career to date was the fact that I did finish my broadcast and journalism degree because it was so hard and I had to go to about three different unis. It took me 11 years. But when I finally got that piece of paper, I felt so proud because I'd finally done it. Just back up the truck. I didn't realise that. Three unis over mm. 11 years. Mm. Yeah. 
At least, yeah. I went to Sunshine Coast University. I did my university in Perth and I did UTS down here. So you weren't expelled from each of those I was not. Unfortunately, I did have to apply for two dean's letters because you're only supposed to do three years. So it was only supposed to take me nine years to do my degree. They give you triple the time. But when When I got into 10 and 11, yeah. I I was trying to find some scandal. I have to say, I promise, I still am playing netball. This is the reason why I'm so slow at finishing my degree. One of the other challenges when you're an elite athlete is dating. You know where I'm going here? Mm. This is an article you sent me, uh, which you <laughs> had printed in New Zealand because the hierarchy in Australia may not have liked this. The title of the article is What You Need to Know About Dating an Athlete. Do you want to give me a bit of context? And I'm going to pull out one or two quotes. Uh, yeah, look, as a journalist, I suppose, I don't even consider myself as a journalist. I get asked to do some writing. And in New Zealand, I totally love the vibe in New Zealand. They're, they're friendly, they're fun, they're cheeky, they want to know things about you, they, they want to unpack the box and so yeah that was one of the questions they asked me they're like write some articles for us but I don't want to hear about your game day prep I don't want to hear about the normal stuff that everyone would ask you tell us stuff we don't know and so yeah a few conversations with my teammates I think one of the most important things is your support network and so you know dating is obviously something we talk a lot about when we have some downtime and I wanted to share some of the experiences of what it was like I'll pull out a couple of the quotes you start by saying the fame the money the muscles being with a professional athlete must all look very glamorous from the outside. But what is the reality of life with a sporting superstar? For this topic, there is no better resource than my teammates. And after some hilarious conversations, I have narrowed down what you need to know about dating an athlete. Firstly, while male athletes have wags, wives and girlfriends, female athletes have habs. Husbands and boyfriends, but you've changed that in New Zealand. You call it bars, right? I think yeah, it's bars, much better. Yeah, bars. Bars for the sheep connection in New Zealand. But yeah, so we have the Habs or the Bars who are our partners. And do you know what? They don't live the glamorous life that the Wags do. You know, you see the Wags getting papped all the time, wearing really expensive clothes and expensive handbags. And that's unfortunately not the life of a Hab. What, what do Bars do? Well, or what do Bars get? Bars, they might get a free pair of shoes if you've got an apparel sponsor. Um, I used to get some of my partners um, some free ASIC shoes. You might get some free tickets to a game, you might get some merchandise if you can fit into a women's extra large t-shirt. So it just depends, you know, it might not be as glamorous as, as being a wag, but there are still benefits. Is it hard when you have a high profile as a female athlete sifting through, like how to find <laughs> a partner? Do you meet online? Is it through social media? What, what are some of the challenges? And, and are there one or two stories you can tell it and you might you know, make a pseudonym. This person <laughs> could be you, could be a teammate. Leave us guessing. So I think it's really funny, like lots of athletes end up hooking up together because we travel in the same circles. We live to, um, you know, similar lifestyles. And so I've never dated an elite athlete, and but I've always been interested when my teammates have because I'm just curious about how that works. To be an athlete, you kind of have to be pretty selfish. You're generally traveling a lot. How does that work when you're in off season and they're in season? Do you ever get to spend time with one another? At the moment, you know, I've got Melissa Healy and, and Mitchell Stark, you know, um, one of the players that I work with. And I'm like, when do you ever see your husband? Well, I think he takes time off and goes over I the know. ashes and he's a great supporter. He went supporter. over to the Com Games to watch her yeah. play and things like that. And I think that is absolutely beautiful. He's a bit rare, Mitch. He is a little bit, yes. Um, so I guess for me, dating-wise, I grew up in Perth. So I kind of got to meet lots of different athletes. I didn't really date any athletes. I kind of steered away from that because I think – you have two people that are athletes. You're both two alphas. It just doesn't work like that. The Habs, the very important role for the Habs is you need to support. And sometimes that's really hard to do. Yeah. Look, when I was an athlete a lot of years ago, I dated a few athletes and just didn't work. 
uh, just timing. And I think you're young as well, but yeah. yeah, I think maybe when you're a little bit more mature in your career, you could make it work. But I see a lot of athletes date non-athletes. Yeah, I think um, for me, I was always attracted to that because I didn't want to live sport 24-7. I like to have a break. I liked, I'm obviously, like I, we've talked about, I'm curious. And so I'm really attracted to people who are smart and curious as well. And so that often leads them down, you know, medical or, you know, financial type jobs, and I, which I find fascinating because that's something I could never do. So I was always attracted to that type of person, someone who had maybe a, a proper job because I never considered being an athlete a proper job. Um, but you know you play sport. I know. You, you don't play finance. I know, yeah. I know. But you get paid well to do finance. You don't True. get paid well. Well, you, I wasn't getting paid well to do um, netball. And so at times I think it was quite interesting, the dynamic was that the sacrifices that I was making for sport for maybe not the financial gain. And so there was times in my relationships where play partners were like, why are you doing this? Like you're not getting paid any money to do it. And, and why are you choosing to go away from me on the weekend? And why are you choosing to do this? And yeah, I think for me, um, netball was my relationship for a very long time. I was quite cutthroat when it came to partners if they didn't fit into my lifestyle. That does require, male or female, a real understanding because in a relationship with a non-athlete, you, know, you have a friend has a 21st or they get engaged or there's a family big function and you go. But when you're playing and when you're you know, doing the Australian New Zealand tournament or playing overseas, you don't go. That that really does require an understanding and that must be hard. Yeah, it is. And to, to be completely honest, like my partners in the past have been incredible. Like one of them went to my sister's 30th birthday when I couldn't go. Like how nice is that to go to your mm. partner's families when they're not even there? Um, I Wait, had, Where's he now? Oh, married with a kid to someone else, but that's okay. But yeah, so I think it is. It's about they spend a lot of time with your family because they're sitting in the crowd with them. Um, um, you know, they're waiting around for you after the game with your family. And so for me, I think it was really important or it is still really important for me to have a partner who wants to engage with my family and gets along well with my family because they're probably going to be spending a lot of time with them. <laughs> you told me that you're an introvert that learned or has learned to be an extrovert. I, I, I get it because a lot of – when you talk about introversion, extroversion, I prefer Carl Jung's definition, which is where do you draw your energy from? Now, I do a lot of speaking, coaching, and some similar work to what you do, and I love being with people. But when I've done a lot of speaking, a lot of coaching, I just need to have some downtime and get away from people. But you tell me you're on an even another level than that, that you are an introvert and you've learned to amplify. Where does this woman come across as an introvert to you? From you walk in, bang, she's here, hello, the energy. That also must be a challenge to to. To, to have in your social life and your personal life, to just you know, totally down-regulate and not to be on, mm. for want of a better word. I love that word because I literally messaged my sister last night and said, I'm exhausted from being on the last two days. And it is. I know I'm an introvert in the fact that at times I have to psych myself up. I have to prepare myself. I'm going into this environment and I'm giving them a version of me that I don't live 24-7. So it does take a lot of energy. But for me, how I recharge is being by myself. Over Christmas, I didn't go back to Perth to see my family. I actually took a week where I got a beach shack down at Minyana and didn't talk to anyone for a whole week. And it was absolute paradise. You're not talking for a week? Absolute paradise. I had a book. I had the dog. I had the beach. I was in my happy place. And so that really reinforces. I love being around people. I love collaborating with people, obviously playing as part of a team. I spent so much of my life being surrounded by people. But when you've been on tour with 12 girls for you know, 22 days in a row to go and get a coffee by yourself or to drive your car by yourself and just have your own thoughts playing in your head is, is awesome. I'm going to send you an article 
and it's about Beyonce. And you didn't think that I was going to send you an article about <laughs> Beyonce right now. And listeners are dropping off by the droves. But Beyonce has a stage name. And I read this and, I, and I've used it recently with Tim Zoo. So Tim's got his big fight coming up against Harrison this weekend at time of recording. And he's doing a lot of media. And, and I won't get into details, but he has a name now we've worked on that he steps into when he's doing the media, and it's not Tim Zoo. So Tim steps out of the car, the taxi, however he gets there, and steps into the stage name. And I saw this article with Beyonce, and he read it and went, I get that, because when you have to be on for media for sponsors, you know, when you're doing all the work at Fox, it's bang, like we're in the studio, it's just you and I, but when you're there and it's going live, you know, there's no margin for error. I reckon that might help you. Actually, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever tried that? It's interesting because I've just finished a counselling degree and we talk about not taking, you know, things that a client tells you home with you. And, and you know, some examples that were told was a practitioner leaves a pair of shoes. So they put their work shoes on and when they're at work, that's great. And then they leave their work shoes and they leave. And, and for me, sometimes I do in the car before I get out of something, I just have a quick little like, okay, cool. This is and I kind of go through my head a little bit. And then once I step out of the car, that's kind of it. And then once I get back in the car afterwards, it's kind of like, okay, I can breathe and relax and I just go back to being quiet little Caitlin. So, yeah, I think for me, sometimes it is clothes. It's putting on certain clothes for media, you know, you put on the fancy clothes and get my hair and makeup done and that's kind of – that's my Sasha Fierce. But I think – Sasha Fierce. That's Beyonce's, yeah. yeah so, yeah. But I think for, for me, it's kind of like a little bit more even just by like um, acknowledging that before I go somewhere, if I sit in the car for two minutes and, and, and decompressing and, and preparing myself that way. I don't need to send you the Beyonce article. You're no. doing that. I do, I know. How did you work that out? I think I was very highly, highly anxious around training and I used to get very upset before I used to go to training and so I used to sit in the car before I got out of the car and I would have to calm myself down physically and so then it kind of came just a a work on for that. Once I dealt with some of my anxiety, it wasn't about being that stressed. It was still about preparing myself mentally. What do I want to get out of this session? I know this is going to be really challenging. What am I going to do? Kind of just giving myself an internal pep talk before I got out there. What is fascinating talking to you and I'm, I'm looking forward to listening back to this to, to pick up on some of the messages because you know when you're interviewing someone there's the content and you listen back and go oh you can really listen into it you've worked out so much of this over the years around these these constructs some some of them are you know, quite simple for people to work out some of them are really deep but you, you have the alter ego you know about role identity. You have learned how to be calm. You've learned this introversion, extroversion dance. You have a role identity. You're not just the athlete. And, and the ultimate is confidence. And you've obviously had trained confidence as a construct. It's two components. One is doing the work. Two is backing yourself. When you stepped in to be captain of the diamonds, you'd done the work and you backed yourself. You're really good at connecting with others. You're mindful. You're present. You've got drive in there as well. The, the tick, tick, tick going through all these constructs. It's a, it's a really good example. <laughs> have, you, have you ever thought about no, that? No, I hadn't. And all those things you said are super flattering. So thank you. I think they've always been a learning as I've gone along and, and just, you know, mentioning the counselling degree, the last three months I've been working on that. One of the theories that we talked about was rational emotional behaviour theory, which is challenging irrational behaviours. And so for the first time, you look at your own life and you use your own life as an as example for how you can help others. And I have so many irrational thoughts. I have them all the time. And it's only just recently that I've started to challenge them. So You should be in my head for oh, a day. I, and it's to be tiring. honest, I think that's the thing. I, I am so much in my own head and I do overthink 
rethink things so much. And I've learned that from talking and working really closely with psychs over the years. And I see so much value in sitting down with a psych and having a conversation with them because I learn so much about myself as I do it. But I actively can't help the players that I'm helping unless I'm self-aware about my own issues. And so I feel like I'm almost a guinea pig to myself at the moment. I test out theories on myself and go, I really like that. And that's you know something maybe I'm going to bring up. Or I'm so much more aware now when a player says to me, oh, I didn't bowl very well today. Like I'm rubbish. I go, oh, that's an irrational thought. I'm going to challenge you on that because that's something I would have thought to myself in netball all the time and just would have glossed over it. Let's rewind back 90 seconds when you said, thank you. That's very flattering. And then you got on to talking about other players, which is your gift, you know, the schadenfreude working with others. But let's just go to you. When I say that, what, what do you think? Have you caught up with that? Can you see that if you step out of ego, no one's going to call you, you know, a big head or anything that we all have growing up? What, what, what do you think when I say that? That I, I look as a practitioner in mental skills, you're highly evolved. You've learned this. It wasn't easy. You have done an iOS upgrade continually. You're hungry. You're always learning. Now you're paying it back, which is a great way to learn even further, teach others. But what do you think when I say that to you? When you look at yourself? I kind of disbelieve you still because imposter syndrome. I think it just is what it is because how do you say that I'm a great leader? Like what, how do you qualify that? We had a quick chat about this previously in that, you know, like I've, I've, I've won world cups. I've won gold medals at at Commonwealth games as a player. But when I became captain, we actually lost the two finals by a point each. And so I'm, I'm, am I a good leader because I haven't actually won world cups and world championships? How do you qualify or quantify what a good leader is? Right. Seabase is alive now, right? (laughs) Let's separate leader and the skills you've got are two separate things. So I, I don't think you've caught up with it yet. I think when I say that, you go, yeah, 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 but I've got some homework for you. You know I always (laughs) love giving you homework. I want you to journal and reflect on it, on all those different skills, what you have learned and and, and how how you've learned them, but where you are with those. And, and, And I know when you catch up with that, it's lag time. Your coaching, your speaking, the mentoring, the work you do, it'll even go to another stage. And it's not ego. It's just acknowledging, hey, I've worked my ass off. I've done so much work and now I know how to draw on those skills because you just do it beautifully. Mm. Even then, like Sasha Fierce, I said, I'm going to give you an article and you're really <laughs> polite and then you tell me a minute later, I've got a dipshit. <laughs> no, I get it. And and to be honest, I think um, the irrational thoughts actually helped me so much as an athlete, continued to push me. Probably at times I was very negative to myself, but it actually helped me get to be the elite athlete I was. And so now breaking some of those habits now that I'm no longer an elite athlete, and challenging some of the things that actually serve me really well is hard. I think in terms of looking at myself as a leader and and good captain and things like that, I'm just always uh, have this little thing on my shoulder that when I was announced as Diamonds captain, so much of the media said, oh, and so many past players kind of said, oh, why they choose Caitlin? Like they probably remember me as the 16 year old kid who couldn't bench press the bar. Lots of people, I think, saw me for certain behaviours in my past and still judged me on that. And that's why I believe I think leadership is learnt and you can evolve your leadership is because, yeah, when I first started playing netball, I had no clue what was going on and I had some really poor behaviours. But through being in the right environment, being with the right people and the right mentors, I actually learnt and developed and reflected and and kind of, you know, got that feedback and, and actively worked on myself. So, 
For me, I think there was a lot of kickback on well, why is Caitlin captain when there's potentially players who are better than her in the team, who shoot better than her, who perform better than her consistently. But it was the stuff that I was doing with the players behind closed doors that Did no one ever saw. They have the awareness. No, and, they didn't. Yeah. And so, and ultimately, it was the playing group that chose me. And so that gave me a lot of confidence. The things that I was doing that no one else saw, they believed in me. And so, you know, when I kind of saw in the media or someone had a go at me or comments were made about, oh, Caitlin's such a lackluster or she's not an inspirational leader, I kind of was like, well, that might be the case for you as an outsider, but for the girls who are in the change rooms who I'm talking to before the game, they see me as an inspirational leader. You get why they chose you. Yes. Even now you would have had time since you finished playing to think more about that. I I think the work you're doing with cricket is really helping foster that because some of the conversations we have, some of the – Feedback I hear from your colleagues, they just said you were just connecting on an amazing level, especially with young women, because you've got experience, but it's not like, hey, I was captain of the diamonds. But then you've also got stories and and a humbleness around it as well. That's why you were chosen. Yeah, I guess – we're humans and we love to connect. And yeah, like I kind of mentioned earlier, um, we don't have to be the same to be able to connect. And I love picking up threads on what we can find as a common ground. It might be the fact that we love coffee. It might be the fact that we love this, you know, maths. My, Me and my dad connect quite heavily on maths, which is very disturbing. Not mathematics. Mar- no, married maths. Married at first sight. Yeah. Sorry to hear that about I you, know, dad. right. And so <laughs> for me, I love that challenge of like, if I've got a new teammate or a new work colleague or I'm in a new environment, I want to get to know you and what makes you tick. I will ask you a billion questions because I'm curious. I want to know what are some of the things that we really align on and then I'll jump on that because that's what gives me joy having those conversations with you. In prep for this, I had a little part on imposter syndrome, but I binned it based (laughs) on conversations, reading, researching you. We'll have it because I I didn't think that you would have had a big case of imposter syndrome, but you just said then. Mm, And most, most people have it. Yeah. I still have it to this day with my job. Yeah, like, am I doing the right thing? Am I, you know, like, how can I quantify my job at the moment working with athletes? It's really hard. I always thought that potentially a role where at the end of the day, you can see like, Caitlin did this amount of work. And so that made she did a good job. I think that's what I'm naturally drawn to because I, I need feedback on, and I'm used to getting feedback constantly through sport, being told that was a good session, that wasn't good, you need to do this better. Whereas in the job I'm doing now, I never get that feedback. And sometimes in media, it's the same. You don't get that feedback. You kind of have to make it up in your own. In media, you get the feedback when they tell you you're not renewing a contract. So you've got to seek that along the way. Mm. I still get imposter syndrome. It's when I step out of the comfort zone and start something new. I had imposter syndrome whiz when we started the podcast. Why will anyone listen to me? I had imposter syndrome massively when I started at Parramatta. What do I know about rugby league? Every time I step into a new area, and, and I actually think having a bit of that feeling is good. It's the juice. It's the buzz that keeps you alive. And it means you're growing your skill set and stretching. If you don't have that, you're going to you know, just fade away. Someone like you, you'll just get bored and then you probably get cranky and then you just it'll be all in your head. But when you step into a, a new skill like that, I come back to confidence even if you don't know the sport, if you don't know the industry, you know, what skills do I have? Yeah. I was the Australian netball captain. I've worked with hundreds of young women. I worked my ass off. I could bench press a broomstick and I overcame that. I understand struggle. I understand challenge, teamwork. And then you just back yourself. Mm-hmm. So rather than you know, causing anxiety, and it, it seems like you've regulated and you've learned to manage this, you're alive and then step into it. So I actually think a little bit of imposter syndrome is good. Too much is crippling. Oh, yes. And I agree with that. I think we always talked about, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And that growth came 
outside your comfort zone, but not too far out. Because if it's too far out, you're just going to be miserable and you're constantly just going to be going, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? But for me, I think that feeling uncomfortable at times is a really good thing because if I'm too comfortable... Uh, yeah, I'm going to get a little bit bored or I'm going to go into autopilot. And I actually don't think that's fair. I don't think you deserve Caitlin on autopilot. You want Caitlin firing on all cylinders. So to do that, you kind of have to sit outside your comfort zone, not too far because there's nothing worse than going, oh my God, I don't want to get up and go to work today every single day. But having challenges that can help you grow and push you is what's going to make you a better person. I tell people you should stretch, not snap, bend, not break. (laughs) And there's a fine line between the two. Career transition. I'm going to go to an article in February 2022. Caitlin Bassett's less than glamorous ending raises questions over athlete transition. This was by Megan Maurice in The Guardian. Megan says, it is rare for athletes to get a fairytale ending. It isn't uncommon to see players with a few professional caps succumb to an injury or fail to have their contract renewed. But it is most jarring when it happens to a player who has reached the highest levels of their sport. Caitlin Bassett's retirement from netball last week is a prime example of an ending to a career that doesn't quite sit comfortably. With 102 caps for the national team, that's a ridiculous amount, she is not a player who many would have expected to finish her career by fading gently into obscurity. Yeah, uh, to be honest, I wanted to fade gently into obscurity because I was pretty hurt when I finished playing netball and the way that it ended. I think we do glamorize fairy tale endings so much. We don't often talk about the challenges that people face or potentially you know, what is next for players who don't get to choose the way that they finish their sport. So that's definitely something that I've wrestled with over the last 12 months since I've been transitioning out of netball. But it is what it is. Like, I can't go back and change anything. Someone asked me the other day, you know, if you could go back and pick another sport, would you? And I was like, no, I would still pick netball. I think netball is fantastic. It gave me everything that I am today. But I probably could have changed the way I finished in terms of my own mindset. Like I felt like I was dumped and didn't finish the way that I wanted to. And and obviously being an athlete, I wanted to control that and I couldn't. Hurt your knees because you'd had ongoing pain and a few operations with your knees or hurt emotionally? Both. Like there's nothing worse than being sat down and being told you're no longer wanted or needed. Um, and no one puts baby in the no, corner. No, exactly. Right? And and for someone who had been lucky enough to to be told that they were needed for so many years in a row, I think it was 13 years in a row that I'd made the Australian team and, and 18 years in a row that I'd been getting professional contracts. Like it just becomes a habit and something that you not always get used to because making it an, an elite team is always a privilege and something that you're working hard for and never taken for granted but I guess it's still it's like your worst fear is actually being voiced that little imposter you're not good enough is all of a sudden being voiced to you back from um, from a coach or from CEO or or from an organization so that was really challenging I think as well um, reflecting on my career it was really hard to to celebrate it and I still haven't I guess taken the time to sit back and really reflect on what netball was or some of the cool things I got to do in my netball career because we kind of go, oh, people come up to me and go, oh, like you're retired, sorry. And I'm like, is that is that really like what you should be saying to someone? It should be like, wow, congratulations on an awesome career. What are you going to do next? You know, like what are you excited about doing next? So I'm trying to flip that narrative in my own head. You are flipping it and you will do a great job in flipping it. I, I, I get the feeling from you though, it was work, 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 there, put back, put back, put back, and that's taken away from you. That's where the hurt is like, yeah. 
what? No, this is not how it ends. It's meant to be the fairy tale ending. You have the champagne bottles cork and you high five and your mates, all the young girls who did their debut, and you sort of go off and have this big party. That yes, didn't happen. Because I'd been so many, I'd been a part of that for so many other players. I'd got, I'd got to thank and wish well to other players who decided it was their time to move on to other things. And to be honest, I almost needed netball to be taken away from me. Um, I was miserable towards the end. And I remember sitting down with one of my good friends, Laura Geitz, and her saying, Caitlin, why are you still playing? And I said, because I don't know what else to do. And so, so much of my life, my identity was wrapped up with being an athlete, with with playing netball that I, if, in, if I got offered a contract, I wouldn't have been able to say no. I would have just said yes and kept going. Mm. But now it's opened up all these other opportunities. It has. I've got the opportunity to do so many things I couldn't do while I was playing and sometimes there were times during a game I'd see one of my friends doing commentary or working in the media and I was like, man, I wish I was doing that. And I was like, oh, well, that would mean I'm not playing. And oh, okay, but playing is more important. And so to be able to do things now that I never got the opportunity to do is, is really cool and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. On the outside watching, it was abrupt for me, mm. having seen your career. and Because you know, when I worked with New South Wales netballers years ago, I've always taken an interest in netball and the national team and, and your legends, the Diamonds. So I wondered, did you offend someone? Like, <laughs> Did you do something outrageous <laughs> that's been swept under the carpet? Or was it just, you know, just a closing that maybe could have been done a little bit differently? Yeah, I think it definitely could have been done a little bit differently. Um, I had called Netball Australia the year previous and voiced some issues I was having and the fact that there was no opportunities for Australian players going around in Australia and that I wasn't happy at the club that I was playing at the Giants and I wanted to get out and what other options were there for me and they kind of said oh well don't worry about it it'll be fine and so then when I did finally turn around to them and say hey I can't get a contract in Australia then they said oh we can't do anything about that and I said I told you about this a couple of years ago I warned you that this was coming I'm captain of the Australian team and I can't get a contract in my own country and there's no opportunities for me help me provide me with opportunities and so that's kind of what it came down to in the end I didn't have opportunities Um, I was injured I went to New Zealand to play and I, I buggered up both my knees and when I came back I didn't have a club to play for but they were all off decisions that I made off my own back and at the end of the day I'll always stick to that I made my own decisions and whether they be good or whether they were bad they led me to where I ended up finishing but I think the hardest thing for me was yeah like I'd worked with Lisa Alexander who was the the coach of the Australian Diamonds for so many years and had such a good relationship with her and I guess when Stacey Marinkovic came in she had a different idea for the way that she wanted the team to be and, and I wasn't part of those plans and I guess you can't do anything more I couldn't be or do I couldn't reverse time and, and go back and change my knees or fix my knees I just was where I was at the time time heals all wounds or all challenges do, do you have closure on it yet no god god no i you know my plan was to play netball at the commonwealth games that you know that's what i was preparing for that's why i moved to new zealand so i could keep getting game time so i could come back and get another contract in australia and challenge and win a gold medal and then finish my career on mm. a high but it didn't work out that way the plans didn't work out that way so while i look back and go oh man it didn't work out that way it doesn't mean all the other things that i did in my career were useless or a waste like i still got to win and go to amazing tournaments and 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 lead a fantastic group of women and for me I guess the people who care most about me and the people that know and that were there with me at the time they get it they understand I don't need to impress or prove anything to anyone anymore but I definitely felt that probably last six months I was part of the commentary team back here in Australia when um, we did World Commonwealth Games and I was actually I felt like I still wanted to be there it's hard that must have been challenge emotionally because you're there on the court side 
you just you got a headset on and a microphone in front of you, and you're not out there with the ball and or the uniform. Mm, and it, I think it's challenging as well when you see players who are your age or older than you, or potentially, you know, we're seeing so many more players now coming back after having kids. And so there definitely are some players that are so well-deserving, have been given so many opportunities and options to continue playing. And at times I was frustrated because I thought, I've given you so much this sport, all you need to do is, is continue supporting me. And I didn't feel like I had that support. But like I said, I'm not angry or bitter about how things finished up. It is what it is. And I understand more than ever now that not everyone gets the fairy tale ending. Were the knees or are your knees okay? Could have you been out there playing at the Com Games? Uh, I could have. I wanted to give it a crack. And I think that's what it came down to. I came back to Australia. I had no contract. I was offered a training partnership with the Sydney Swifts and I wanted to do that. But I also had to get a full-time job because a training partner only gets paid $5,000 and I couldn't afford to live in Sydney on that. So it got to the stage finally when I was like, do you know what? I'm sick of pushing down every door. I feel like I've done everything. I'd, I'd spent you know so much time doing rehab one-on-one. I went to Perth and got surgery. I did everything possible. I actually can look back now and and not regret not doing everything that I needed to do to get back out there. Because you're captain of an Australian team, an an iconic team. I can't imagine in rugby league, rugby union, that a captain, basketball, a captain is then just the following year doesn't get a contract. What, What happens in AFL and rugby league a lot as well is you hang around the club. So a club will say, hey, Seabass, come hang around. Yeah, you're a good chick. We love having you around. Good for yarn. You, you, you go down to Perth sometimes to recharge. We get that. You're a bit of an introvert, uh, but come and hang around. That doesn't happen in netball, does it? No, it doesn't. And to be honest, I wouldn't want to have done that. I've always pushed for selection, pushed for a starting seven spot. The reason why I sacrificed so much time was because I, I felt like I had a purpose out there on court. And so if I was just there as an extra or, hey, help us along and if I did have a purpose, you know, we need you to really support this young player or we, you know, we want to use you both and you're going to kind of groom her up to be the next year, I would have totally embraced that. But I think for me as well, valuing other things in my life and that I'm so lucky that I have other passions to pursue and other things that I get excited about. And so when the netball door closed, it just opened up other doors for me. I appreciate your honesty. When I said, have you got clothes? You go, no, you almost jumped at yeah. me down the microphone. <laughs> I look forward to a year or two down the track after you've had time to make meaning and making meaning on any part in our life is when we come up with new mental models. There is a real lesson, a learning. It's part of what you're already doing with with young women and, and young men in the work in cricket. I reckon in time. In fact, I wanna, I'm going to come back and ask you in a year mm-hmm. or so, well, where are you at with that now? Yeah. And, and I... I'm very mindful of that. Um, When I finished playing netball and I was stuck here in Sydney because the border had closed in WA, I got the job at Cricket New South Wales and I probably didn't take the time that I needed to just be. In a perfect sense, I would have dropped everything here in Australia and gone travelling and just tried to lose myself and, and come and get some of that closure and some time, but I haven't had that. So at some stage, while I'm kind of juggling other things, I'm, I'm looking to do that at the same time. And I find it cathartic talking about it. I still see a psych and have conversations. I'm still working on self-identity because um, I f- feel like it's more important now than ever. I love putting a bit of background music. Where's the greatest showman? This is me. That's you. It Here is. I am. Yeah, look, love me or hate me. I think I used to try really hard to try and please everyone, but once I just started to be myself, and I love the old adage, watch it again, Brene Brown, fitting in versus being yourself. Fitting in is great, and you try and mould yourself to be a part of something else, but for me, what I found real pleasure in is being able to be myself. So, Can we organise a party? Let's. I'm serious. Did you have a party? No. 
Why not? I'm not a partier because I'm a loser. <laughs> You're not a loser. Why don't you organise your own party? Get those people close to you. It may even just be a dinner. Yeah, I will. I will. It's definitely going to be something I do with my family at some stage. Yeah, yeah. I think that can help. It's because like, you haven't had the no the, the the clinking of the glass. Yes. Of yeah. orange juice. Yep. I can see that brain is still processing, isn't it? Yes, indeed. It's always going to be. It's always going a million miles an hour. But you know, it's not your story. It's part of your story. This is true. And this is why I'm, I guess, excited about helping other people. And there are definitely things that happen in the background that I'm not privy to um, and I push really hard for. But at the end of the day, I think it was my time. I just got sick of pushing. All right, let's wrap up on the performance intelligence baker's dozen. 13 questions about you. The first block of questions is all about your favourites. So number one, your favourite song or band? Oh, I I was just going to say genre. I'm like an old school noughties, 90s. I listen to Triple M 90s. It's probably my favourite. So, yeah. I love the 90s too. And number two, your favourite movie? Oh, gosh. I love a thriller. So anything like a little bit intense that I have to think about. Um, oh, also Top Gun. Like, hello. I'm such a big Top Gun girl. How good is the new Top Gun as well? I know. Oh, Val Kilmer, he breaks my heart. So, yeah, yeah. I love Top Gun. Number three, favourite book? Ooh, I... Uh, once again, I love a, tr- a true crime. So I do love reading true crime novels. Um, so just anything that's based on a true story that's crime related. For your favourite possession? Oh... Um, I, I wouldn't say my animals are my possessions, but definitely the pets. There's just something about them. They're cathartic. They're my therapy. I tell them all my stories and secrets and they and they listen. Well, they say animals are like having a therapist. They are. Question five, your favourite food? Can I say coffee? Is that a food? I would literally drink that for breakfast, lunch and dinner. How many coffees do you have a day? I try and limit myself to three. Question number six, what time do you wake up and go to bed each day? I try to be in bed at 10 o'clock every night and my general wake-up time is about 6.37, but I never regret waking up early and getting things done in the morning. I'm definitely more productive in the morning and definitely my brain switches off, but I'm a really good night owl, so I can stay up to like midnight working on things. Okay, so you can burn the candle at both ends. Yeah. Question seven, do you have a morning routine? Uh, taking the doggo for a walk. We go left or right depending on which way he wants to take me and there's a cafe at the end of the street of each way, so it's really nice. Eight. What does your weekly fitness schedule look like now? It's exercise every day. For me, it's something that I haven't been able to break that little habit of that control of feeling like I've got something that I can control. So I'm lucky I've got the gym at Cricket New South Wales. I've got a Fitness First membership. I love doing the Bay Run. And so, yeah, just something every day that gets out and gets moving makes me feel like I've made the best of that day. Question nine, tell me one of your favourite or one of your go-to productivity tips. This is really contradictive. So sometimes it's collaboration. So I'll, um, if I sit down and other people are working, I'm like, yeah, let's all work. This is great. I love it when the cricket girls come in and do their study because I'll sit with them with my computer and get my emails done. Also, I get distracted easily and I like to chat. So sometimes it's like no TV, no music, dead silence. I just have to lock myself away at home to get the work done. Deep work. I get that. Connect when you need to collaborate and then just go into a hole yep. and do your work. Question 10, your most vivid childhood memory. This is an interesting one. I will always remember my dad, a bit of a trickster. Um, we've got a very good relationship. We're still very close. Crawling along the ground. I reckon I would have been about six and I was making cookies with mum and he was crawling along the ground trying to sneak some of the cookie dough and I just screaming with laughter. I was sitting on the kitchen bench at our old house in Perth. Yeah, just something vividly that I'll always remember. You light up when you talk about that oh, story. I love it. I love food. <laughs> <laughs> Question 11. What's the biggest adversity you faced and what did that teach you? 
oh, I guess, yeah, like missing out on a contract or getting retiring. And it's, um, yeah, still something I'm dealing with. What has it taught me? That I am resilient and there's so much more to me than just being a netballer. There certainly is. Question number 12, what achievement or achievements are you most proud of? Yeah, my degree is definitely one of them. Um, There's been many, many nights of tears. There's been study on tours. Yeah, to get a piece of paper with my name on it. It it sounds so silly, but for me, study in academia was big when I was growing up. And so to be able to juggle that and to still show once again that there's more to me than just playing netball, I think was really important to me. Question 13, what is your definition of high performance? It's doing the little things when no one's watching. Yeah, it's it's the the waking up early. It's the the sacrificing the little things that no one else will do to to, to get there. I've really enjoyed today. I've been, I've enjoyed the banter. I've enjoyed you seeing you light up, and I've enjoyed seeing you get serious. You've taken me on a bit of a roller coaster on your life, your emotions, your feelings, what you're still working on. I have no doubt there's people listening to this who want to connect with you, who want to read the articles that you write for funky New Zealand magazines about dating or to have you come and speak. You're doing a lot of speaking. For someone who wants to connect with you or the coaching you do, how do people find you? I've got a website. It's just um, my name, caitlinbassett.com.au. So there's a contact page on there and most people reach out to me that way. And we'll put it in the show notes, but I'll spell it out because mm. there's a lot of S's and T's. It's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-B-A-W. That's it. Thanks for today. It's been a pleasure. Hey, it's Andrew back for a wrap of this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I loved it. I really enjoyed listening back to Caitlin's domain expertise with a lovely blend of study and also practical experience and giving herself or she has had time to catch up and now teach this to others. And you could hear the thought bubbles. I could feel the thought bubbles in the conversation. That became even more apparent when I listened back to it. I was also impressed just how evolved Caitlin is in the area of mental skills. And while I talk about 12 essential mental skills, starting with the base level, moving into state management, and then higher order performance psychology constructs, it was really interesting when I mentioned self-talk or when we're talking about role identity, while Caitlin didn't call it that, she had actually worked this out herself. And, and I think one of the classics was Wizard and I were debriefing on this when I mentioned creating a narrative or an alter ego, and she was so polite, but when I mentioned and Beyonce's example of Sasha Fierce. And then at the end of that, Caitlin said, oh yeah, I've done that. Rather than saying, hey, idiot, I I already know what that is. So, so humble. And, And I really think Caitlin was catching up with just how much work she's done as we continued to talk throughout the podcast. It's also a really good example of high performance in any domain, whether it's sport, media, military, arts, music, whatever it is you choose for mastery, you've got to do the reps and the sets. And Caitlin has been doing reps and sets for 15 to 20 years. Now she has an articulate way, she has such a natural way of teaching that to others. So if you're wanting to improve, if you're wanting to go to a higher level in your performance, exactly the same, you've got to do regular reps and sets. Final message, and I know you hear this like I hear this in every podcast, we would love a rating and review. Can you do me a favor? If you've listened to this episode and thought, oh, I got at least one great piece of information from Caitlin, can you go to iTunes? Can you subscribe? And can you also leave a comment? Because that really does help us with some of the commercial discussions we're having behind the scenes, which helps us continue to power a high quality podcast for you to listen to every week. 